So God says to us tonight, if you will give him what he desires, your heart, the seat of the throne of your heart, he says, will I not open up heaven to you and bless you beyond measure and you will not be able to contain it. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. So, as you know, we've been going through the whole book of whatever minor prophet we've been going through for the last 12 weeks. So, the whole book of Hosea, the whole book of Jonah, all at one kind of sitting, doing a flyover, kind of highlighting the main themes, highlighting the major kind of uh, applications in these books and the main teachings of them. And so, we're going to do the same thing tonight. We're going to teach through Malachi, all four chapters not like Zechariah that had 14 chapters and it got super crazy weird with visions all over the place. This is going to be much more straightforward. But as you know, we've had um, a theme for each book, uh, kind of two sentences that kind of um, place this book in the Bible, why it's there and the theme of it and who this prophet is. So Malachi is the realist prophet. He is the realist prophet and this is about... Israel's complaining and God's money. That's what it's about. This has next level complaining, like the book of numbers level of complaining from the nation of Israel. But um, Malachi, what's interesting about him, his name means messenger, and that's about all we know about him. That's, we don't really know much else about him in history. We know when he prophesied and when he did this, but um, This book, being the last book of the Old Testament, this is the epilogue of the Old Testament. This is the last thing God wants to say before 400 years of prophetic silence that ends with John the Baptist. Okay, so for the next 400 years after this book, there is no living prophet, no word from God on high. But the minor prophets doesn't really end, okay? It doesn't end here. It kind of just sputters out. There's real no... No real finality to it because Jesus is the end of the Old Testament, right? There's no, this is not the finality of it. It kind of just sputters out. It's not this proclamation. It kind of ends and we're like filled with, (laughs) filled with hope, although it does. But there is hope in this book. But it's not this kind of encapsulating of the Old Testament. However, it does kind of sum up some of the attitude of Israel and we get to see Um, God's hand in Israel, and we will see those three cyclical themes that I have said for the last 12 weeks that you are tired of hearing, but you're going to hear it one more time. The three themes that are found in the Minor Prophets are return, repent, restore. Absolutely. We see those three in this book very clearly, just like the other ones, although he really harps on the restore and repent part a lot more. Okay, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is the end of the Old Testament narratively, and Malachi completes it prophetically. The conditions that he describes, Malachi is going to describe, they fit in well with what is recorded of the state uh, of the returned remnant in that latter period of Nehemiah's governorship. Remember when Nehemiah brings the people back, they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So it is quite likely that he lived and ministered the word of Jehovah 
either during that time or a little later, after the rebuilding of the temple. Now this again is a rebuke to the people of God to return, repent, and God will bring restoration. But the way that it's written is unique in that basically Israel is complaining, but then Malachi says to them, but you say. He says that over and over. You'll, you'll mark it in your Bible as something that is reiterated. Yet you say, or but you say, he says. So God will make this proclamation, and then they'll question it. Like, when did we do that? Or how do we see that? Okay? And it will expose, Malachi exposes some of the ridiculous things that they have said. Like, just, has that ever happened to you? Someone's like, remember when you said, and you're like, oh, that's that's embarrassing. I can't believe I actually said that out loud. That was supposed to be like an inner monologue type thing, and it came out of my mouth. Has that ever happened to you? Just me. Right on. But here's what he says. I have, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, right, here's our first one. Yet you say, speaking of the children of Israel, in what way have you loved us? Wow, what a question. Chapter 1 begins with Malachi bringing a specific correction to Israel, but before God corrects them, he assured them of his love for them. And this is a set foundation for their obedience because of the love of God and the love that God has for them. He says, this is why I desire for you to obey my word and my commandments. As it also says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will Keep my commands, right? He says, because I love you, I've laid out these things for you that you may walk in righteousness and holiness. And the question that they ask is, but when have we ever seen the love of God? Like in the past years, through the Babylonian exile, through, through the, um, the Assyrian empire, through all of these things, how have we experienced the love of God? Where do we see it? This question is a kind of question that is rarely spoken, but often kept in the heart. Like when people say, God loves you, and we know that Jesus loves you. In your heart, you may think, when have I ever seen God's love for me? But rarely do we actually verbalize those thoughts and that feeling. These questions, however, reveal their doubting, discouraged, and sinful heart. They doubted God's love for them, not because of, of the lack of blessing, but because of the discipline that they experienced. They're like, how is this God's love for us? Um, and what they're going to find is that that discouragement of, of trying to rebuild God's temple and rebuild the city walls, they were discouraged by the enemy. If you remember in the book of, um, oh, which one was it? Haggai? I'm going with Haggai. It was in Haggai, remember? They were discouraged because they were trying to rebuild the temple. The enemy comes. They stop building God's house. And he tells them, you need to get back to work. God is with you. Oh, remember, he says, God is with you. God is for you. Let's build again. And they're like, you, you know what? You know what? You're right. Let's build some stuff. God's with us. Like, if God's with us, who can stop us? And they start just working, and they get the work done. Nehemiah's book tells us. But the questions that they ask is, in what way have you loved us? It's Malachi 1 and 1, 2. In what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? In what way have we wearied him? In what way shall we return to him? 
In what way have we robbed you, God? In what way have we spoken against you? God asked Israel to find assurance in his election of them, his choosing of them. He says, I have loved you and chosen you. Look what he said. they say to him, in what way have you loved us? And he says, the very fact that I picked you should communicate to you that I love you. And this is one of the, those debated verses. Was Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his, his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Obadiah tells us that, uh, of that story and really helps us to understand this statement found in Malachi. Um, Obadiah reminds us that Esau was a man of the flesh. The way to remember Obadiah, the theme of, of Obadiah is Obad-Edom. Obadiah, Obed-Edom. It talks about the sins of the Edomites who were the descendants of Esau. And because of their sin, it was, it was something that was um, before, before God had chosen Jacob. He says, yet Jacob I have loved and Esau I have not chosen. For the jackals in the wilderness, that's what's going to be for them. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw it down. Right, they, He says to them, the very fact that these twin brothers, there was Esau and there was Jacob. Esau was the firstborn, but I have chosen, right? John taught about it last night. Pastor John talked about it last night. He chose the lesser, the younger. And they say, how have we seen your love for us? And God says, by your election, you see my love for you. Not when you were lovable, not when you were selectable, not when you were all cleaned up and walking in holiness, but when you were dead in sins and trespasses, when you were walking and just didn't even exist yet, God chose the nation of Israel. And he calls them to, to grow in their understanding of God's love for them by their assurance in their election that God had chosen them, his choice for them. He wanted them to understand that they were chosen and remained his chosen and favored people. I don't know about you, but it is something that I have struggled with my whole life is, is preaching to others the love of God and assurance in the love of God for you. How could you doubt it? Like, I don't understand. Do you know how amazing you are? And on the inside, I'm like, I have no, this is, yeah, easier to say than to do. Like where I begin to question my assurance, like am I really a chosen one of God? Am I one of his kids? Did God really want me? How do I know? Have I done the secret crazy sin that will never allow me to come back? Ah. And that's inside my head and all that stuff. <laughs> but if there's anywhere that I think I need to grow as a Christian and perhaps you can identify, it's in the assurance that God loves me and has chosen me. Not in some like weird, um, new agey kind of like self-love thing, but just growing in the assurance that God is a God who does not go back on his word. And he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. And I have confessed with my mouth and I have believed in my heart and there is no sin that can separate me from the love of God. There are times where I doubt if that's really what God means. I don't know if you ever find yourself in that place, but I do myself. Understanding our election can bring a wonderful assurance of God's love. It means that God chose us before we existed. And the Bible talks about this uh, throughout the, the New Testament. It talks about God's um, uh, choosing people and, and God's um, 
handpicking and, and all that stuff. And, and then there's this other debate and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. Here's the thing. God has chosen humanity. We get to choose him back, right? God's not going to force anyone to go to heaven. He's not going to like drag you there and be like, you will enjoy heaven and you will like it. He's not some <laughs> um, parent like myself. We're like, you will eat those vegetables and you will enjoy it. And I, you will, mm, that's, God's not going to force you into his heaven. God has chosen mankind, right? The gospel of John tells us, whoever wills, let him come. Because God had chosen all of humanity in the sense that he died for all and gives the opportunity for all for salvation. But man has responsibility to also choose him back. It's like an engagement. And some of you are getting engaged and talking about being engaged. And it's all very, very exciting. Um, but the proposal is terrifying. My wife and I dated for five years. I was pretty, pretty sure she was going to say yes, but there's still like this little element of doubt. Like, what if I get on my knee and I just emptied my bank account on this little rock here and, 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 and I'm holding it and I'm like, well, what if she says no? Like, this is terrifying, but, but like, Hey, what's up? But you choose, right? You choose. I have chosen to be with you. Hence the engagement ring. Here is your assurance of my love. I've chosen you. But the other person gets the opportunity to choose them back. In the same way, God has chosen us. The, the, the picture of his engagement ring is the cross of Christ. He has proven it to us in the demonstration of it, giving his own life for us and says, this is for you. I have chosen you, but will you choose me back? And if you have, may we grow in that understanding and the assurance that God loves you and cares for you like you're the only one here. We should remember the reason why election is brought up here, not to exclude, but to comfort and reassure. Um, Charles Spurgeon, he says this, a woman once said to, to Mr. Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That Spurgeon replied is, um, his reply is, not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. He's like, I'm not, I'm not having a problem with God rejecting Esau. I'm having a problem with the fact that God chose Jacob. Why would he choose Jacob? And if you read Genesis in one sitting, just put it on one day in your car if you're on a long drive. Put on the Bible app and just listen to the book of Genesis and listen to how jacked up the family of Jacob is. It is like a, it's not even a soap opera. It is rated are like it is messed up the stuff that they get into and you're like how is this God's chosen people at the end of Exodus or at the end of Genesis when you're done reading that all of us should sit there in awe and go God is really really nice <laughs> because this family is jacked up and that's the point it's not that we're so lovable and choosable it's that who are we that God would choose us it should humble us. It should bring us to a place of humility, of saying, God, who am I? But you are God. I'm blessed that God would choose. So they say to him, when, when have you loved us? And God says, at, at my choosing of you, when I, I picked you. In verse 6, it says, a son honors his father and a servant his master, and then I am father. Where is my honor? 
And if I am master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you, priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? The second one here is, how have we despised your name? How, how, have we let you, how have we not honored you? And the Lord speaks in verse 7. He says, you offered defile food at my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept your favorable, says the Lord of hosts? What they were doing is, is taking, when they would come to make sacrifice to the Lord, they were finding like all the jacked up animals, like the blind sheep and like the one with the weird hoof and, and the, the spotted ones and like the diseased ones. And they were offering that to the Lord. And there were clear instructions in the book of Leviticus, in the law of God that says, you will bring a unblemished lamb. Like very specifically, why? Why was God so gnarly about that? Like, what's the big deal? Why do I have to give the best? Because the sacrificial system would point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And no matter what man would throw on the altar, unless it was perfect, it was unacceptable. It was unacceptable and says, this is how you're defiling me, is you're coming and bringing your cast-offs, like the stuff you don't want. Does anyone... Ever experienced that where someone's like, I have something for you. God put you on my heart, and so I have something for you. And it's like a broken down ping pong table. It's like trashed, and you're like, thank you? I have to take a trip to the dump again because of the stuff that you bring me, right? I love that. You know what? This thing's a piece of junk. We should give it to the church. Like, no, don't bring your rat-infested leather couch to the church. We don't want it, right? Or you're, or, you know, I have many examples of throwing couches off the side of the church and like loading them in a truck and driving them away because they're disgusting. Or ping pong tables that lasted five seconds and some junior higher leaned on it. Someone's like, I have this ping pong table. It's from the 50s. You're going to love it. And you're like, thanks. It's garbage. Why do we do that? Like, oh, I have trash. Maybe the church wants it. God, <laughs> here's the point. Here's the point. God doesn't want your cast-offs. God doesn't want your junk. What does he want? He wants the best. He wants the best of us. He doesn't want just our mind. He wants the the seat of of the throne upon our heart. He doesn't just want my actions. He wants the seat of the throne of my heart. Not just like what I can give him and like, yeah, God, I, I give you my Sundays and I give you my Wednesdays. He says, days, I don't, whatever. I want the seat of the throne of your heart. That's what I want. And so often, we can give God those things that, the, the seconds or, or the things that are despised. The priests weren't even aware that they were despised, or that they had despised God with their actions. This meant that it came, to, came by degrees. They probably didn't know the extent of their offense and simply carried on as before. And they slowly slid into despising God's name. And, and I love what the Lord reminds them of. He says, am I or I am a great king. Look at verse 14 of the end of chapter one. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among nations. What does he remind them of? I'm the king. I am the great king, he says. This, they simply did not treat God like a great king, one to be feared and honored. When we offer shallow, insincere worship to God, we don't honor him as a great king. 
And that's what the Lord is saying. You're coming to me, but in the way that you're coming is not what I've asked for. You should come in reverence and honor and things like that. So, so that's, that's the point of chapter one here. These are the things that God is bringing against them. Again, just this complacency in their walk with the Lord. However, chapter two begins to talk about unfaithful priests, and it talks about broken marriages that are, are taking place amongst the priesthood. Um, because you do not take it to heart, look what he says um, in verse Verse two, if you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. You do not take it to heart. Notice he says that multiple times. Their sin all went back to a hollow formalism. It was a religion of surface emotions, outward signs, but not of the heart, right? They're going through motions, they're doing all these things and God's like, that's not... You do not take it to heart. You don't take it seriously. You don't take the relationship that, that we have seriously, the sacrifices seriously, the way in which we worship seriously. And the Lord says, that's, uh, you're not doing a good job. So verse 7, he says, For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. They had gotten off the path. Even the priests had begun to just get away from God's commands and God's word. And he says, it's time to come back. All of this, okay, when God is bringing these things to their attention, he's with the intention of correcting it and saying, come back. Come back. You've shifted off, but like just take, just turn back. Repent is the, is the key word. Turn to me and, and come back to those things and receive restoration. In, in verses 5 through 7, it talks about the covenant. And he says, um, God used Levi as an example for the priests in the days of Malachi. Levi was, was shown to be an example of reverence, of knowing God's word, of godly character, preserving and promoting God's word, that he should keep the knowledge and, and people should seek the law from his mouth. But they weren't doing that. They had gotten off track, off path. And if you look at verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is, God, where is this God of justice? They're, they ask the question, how are we wearying God? How are we wearing him out? And where is this justice of God in an unjust world? Where is this God of justice when all of this stuff's going on? How come God's not stepping in and taking care of it? And he says, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. This is what their, their, um, their perspective is. Like God blesses all the wicked. God blesses all these people, but like his own people... They suffer. What is the deal? Like, yeah, God of justice, what's going on? They were depressed and discouraged because it seemed like the wicked prospered and had it better than the godly. So this filled them with doubt and unbelief, and they grumbled that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. So where is this God of justice? But look at verse 1 of chapter 3. When it says that they wearied him or were... Uh, this kind of ignorant, unbelieving talk from the nation of Israel was wearisome to God. 
It showed how much his people resist his truth and his work. Think about all these books that we've gone through, and this has kind of been this reoccurring theme where God is telling them what to do, and they're resisting the whole time. And it's like, you've wearied me. Like, you've, you're wearing him out. And we're like, what? How could you? But look at what they've done this whole time. They've resisted the truth. It's easy. Okay. It's super easy on this side of it to be like, oh, you dorks. Like, or that's not, I don't know if that's the word that you use. But like, oh my gosh, like, duh, just do what God says. It's so simple. It's so easy. You can't, we cannot let the word of God become distant from us like some ancient letter. This is meant to be held close. So it's meant to be something that I look into my own heart. Is this something that I have done where I resist God's truth and I resist his way? And all the while God say, you, I, I'm calling to you, but you just won't listen. And you're like, well, how... How have I wearied you? Like, I'm doing, all the right, I'm doing all the right things. God says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Don't let it become some distant ancient book. I know this is like old and this is before Jesus comes. It's like super old. But it's not to be something distant from us. We hold it close to our heart and ask the question of ourselves, Lord, is this me? Much like the disciples in the upper room when, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they all asked, is it I? Because all of us have the potential for great evil if it, not, if it were not for the Spirit of God. And so the word tonight would be, if you are resisting the truth, then God's advice to you would be to turn, to repent, to be restored, and start walking in God's truth. Like, and it, ha- it can be a mo- in a moment's decision. Like, you know what? Lord, you're right. And I'm sorry, I repent, I turn. Chapter three, he says, okay, uh, where is this God of justice? And he says in verse one of chapter three, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is a prophetic word to the person of John the Baptist because there would always go before a king, a messenger or a herald who would say like, like the, the king is coming. Like here is his message. Here is his decree. John the Baptist was that man who went before Jesus and prepared the way, right? What does he say? I, I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's prophetic. John the Baptist is the, is the messenger that God would send. And then Further on in the verse, it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So not only is is the messenger coming, even the messenger of the covenant, he says. This second messenger is the Lord himself. It's Jesus coming to his temple as the fulfillment of the old covenant and to institute a new covenant. This is what Malachi is prophesying, that not only will there be a messenger who will prepare the way, but the messenger of the covenant, who is Jesus Christ, will come and he will stand in his own temple, instituting the new covenant of the Lord. And look what it says in verse three. He will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver, and he will purify the son of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. It, it speaks of the refining that Jesus would bring, that, that he would set things right. And they're saying, where is this God of justice? And, and Malachi say, says to them, he's coming. 
Where is this God? Where is God who's going to set things right? And he says, the Messiah is coming. He's coming. Be prepared. He's coming. The one who will set things right. Um, and for the sake of time, verse 8. Here's the other one. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. He says, do not rob God. God says, you've robbed me. And they're like, in what way? How? Prove it. Here's how. You stop giving tithes and offerings. Like, you robbed me. You, 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 you're swindlers. You are uh, bamboozlers, if there's another goofy, dumb word that I can find. Right? You're, you're swindling the Lord. It seems crazy to think that a man could rob God, but what could someone possibly steal from God? And the Lord explained how it could happen. They robbed God by withholding their tithes and offerings. They stopped giving to the work of the Lord. They stopped giving to the house of God. And he's saying, you're not, what, you're robbing me. Why would you rob me? Now, this is not like a proof text like where you're like, if you're not tithing, get out. No burgers for you. That's not what we're going to, you know, um, that's not what we're communicating this evening. But how else do we rob God? Right? If they were withholding tithes and offerings, in what way have you withheld from God? What do you withhold from God? Is there something, maybe it's, it's your idea of relationship and what that's going to look like. And you're like, God, I'm serving you. I love you. But this stuff, like, don't touch it. This is mine. And I will not give this to you. Like, God, I trust you. I love you. I believe your word. But when it comes to my career and like what I want to do with my life, like, this is mine. Don't touch it. And so again, may we hold the letter of God's word close. In what way are we robbing God? And really we're just robbing ourselves of all of the fullness that God offers. So when we think we're like hiding it from the Lord, we think we're actually like cheating him in some way, or we're, we're escaping the system. In fact, man, you're actually robbing yourself from the fullness of God's blessing. Because look what he says later. He says, bring all the tithes, verse 10, bring all the tithes in the storehouses that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. Do you hear what he just said? He's like, try me. Like, try it. Give to me what you're supposed to and look what will happen. If it will not, or if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. He says, if you will give to me what little you have, will I not open the skies and pour out upon you blessings so much that you will not be able to contain it? Check this out. Where in the Gospels do we see this happening? In, in what ways did we see this happening throughout the life of Jesus? We saw it at his first miracle of Canaan. Come on. Where else do we see it? Say it out loud. At the breaking of the bread, right? Some little boy who's like, I brought my lunch. My mom packed me a lunch. And I want to give it to you, Jesus. Right? Sorry. And he gives him his lunch. What does he do? He multiplies it so much that they have 12 baskets of leftovers. Like, in, in abundance. Like, beyond what they could even imagine. It says that each person ate until they were the fattest of fat. That's what the, the language is. 
Even when, he, when Jesus talks about the sparrows, do I not care for them more? He says, I feed them. It means I fatten them. That's how much I feed them. Are you not more valuable than they? So God says to us tonight, if you will give him what he desires, your heart, the seat of the throne of your heart, he says, will I not open up heaven to you and bless you beyond measure and you will not be able to contain it? Where else do we see it? There's some fishermen. They come in and they're tired. They caught nothing. And Jesus is like, let's go fishing. And they're like, it's you, I, you don't know how to fish. We went on a guy's fishing trip a few years ago. I spent 90% of the time tying fishing knots because no one knew how to tie knots. I was happy to do it. It was lovely. Billy brought a deep sea pole. It was fantastic. We we're in a river. Here's the thing. <laughs> that was my favorite. That was my favorite part of the trip. Is you put your pole together, it was like nine feet long. You're like, <laughs> it's amazing gonna catch me a marlin you said this is great <laughs> anyway so here's the point Jesus goes out on the lake and he tells them cast your nets on the other side what happens they obey they just do the little the little thing that Jesus asked they pushed out they obeyed and their nets were so full they began to break this text is is prophetic of the Messiah to come what we have in Jesus and what heaven will be. Guys, in the kingdom of God, it never runs out. Like it's in abundance, he's saying. And one way we experience the blessing and the love of God is as we do as God says and give him that little bit of trust and that faith. Man, does God not open up heaven and pour out blessing? It's not contained. Not just in, mon I'm not saying that God's gonna give you a Ferrari and you're like, just pouring out heavens, man. Just bought another Maserati because that's not how it goes at all. A lot of times it's the opposite. But what we have spiritually in wealth is, is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. Chapter four, bringing it home. Here we go. There's more stuff, but I want to eat a burger. Verse one says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who wickedly uh, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. God promises a fire for his people in Malachi chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. And he says here that he promised a fire for the wicked as well. But there is a big difference between the refining fire applied to God's people and the burning fire against the ungodly at the day of the Lord. Now, all who do wickedly will be stubble. Stubble is this unusable part of the grain, and it lasts only moments if it's thrown into fire. And so he says that's, that's what it will be like on the day of the Lord. Leaving them no root, no branch, there will be nothing left. But it turns the corner here in verse 2. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Hallelujah. And you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, 
For all Israel with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and their hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now the son of righteousness, notice it's S-U-N. It's like a capital S. It's not a misprint in your Bible. Um, from the time of the early Christians, like uh, Christians have regarded the son of righteousness as a reference to Jesus. In many passages, God is related to a planet or a star, Psalm 84, Isaiah 60, uh, Revelation 22, Numbers 24, and those are verses if you want, I can give them to you later. But here the Messiah is not only a son, but also the son of righteousness who brings healing, who brings healing. In verse 4, he says to them, remember the law of Moses. In these fast few prophetic words of the Old Testament, Malachi warns Israel to remember the law of God. Because God's prophetic voice would be silent for some 400 years after this. And we, would, we never need to despair when God seems silent, is the point. Because what he has already said is rich enough. If we will only remember it. But that, verse 2, but you who fear my name. There's this remnant that he's talking about here those that held fast to it. And they said, during this time of silence, just hold on to the words of God. Hold on to his word. Remember his promises. The Messiah is coming. When it says that he will send Elijah the prophet, Elijah is dead and gone at this point. But in this unique promise, God assures his people that he would send Elijah to Israel again before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, meaning the second coming of Christ. Not the rapture, but the second coming of Christ. So when Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two in, in that day. That's what we're talking about here. This was fulfilled in John the Baptist in a figurative sense. Yet because this uh, Elijah comes before the coming of the great and dreadful day, we know that Elijah's prophecy is only completely fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we see Elijah appear as one of the two witnesses. A lot of people, like we know one's Elijah as the two witnesses that come and preach the gospel to the Jews there in the last days. Others think it's Moses. Um, there's other opinions on who that other person is. But that is why... Okay, when Jesus comes on the scene after 400 years of silence, they always ask him, are you Elijah? Right? They always ask him, are you Elijah? Because we know your word, or we know God's word said that before, before, like, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, to, that's going to come and like consume everything, you, the, 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 like God would send Elijah. Are you Elijah? Remember, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do men say that I am? And he says, some say that you're Elijah. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? He says, you're, you're the Messiah, son of the living God. So that's where this is coming from. But it also refers to, again, end times, the second coming of Christ, after the rapture and, and um, uh, the two witnesses will be sent to preach the gospel. They'll be killed. Remember your eschatology. Read the book of Revelation. However, we're going to sum this puppy up. In anticipation of this, the Jews' homes set a place at the table for Elijah at Passover, just in case he might come in that night to announce the news of the Messiah. Okay? But it ends with this promise. Those who fear my name, like the Messiah is coming, remember the word of the Lord. And the same true, again, let's hold this letter close to our heart. The Messiah is coming. 
Let's hold fast to the word of God. The minor prophets, man, they teach us that the Bible is not exclusively devotional, right? It's not intended just specifically for you to drink coffee and be like, Jesus loves me so much. I remember in the book of Haggai, just like, no, it reminds us that the Bible teaches us about God. That is what the Bible is about. It is about God. Does it teach us that God loves us? Absolutely. It's like the first thing we read tonight. But it is not exclusively devotional. We're like, how does this affect me? But it also, listen, it teaches us about God, how, we're to, how, to, how we are to approach him, how we are to live in, in the likeness of who he is. And it is the unveiling of his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about him coming for us, but it is mainly, and what the minor prophets remind us of, it is about God. It's about God. God's grace, God's mercy, his character. I mean, we've seen it. God carefully and slowly, patiently calling to his people, repent, return, let me restore you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We do pray, God, that you would continue to just minister these things to our hearts. And God, we're thankful that you are a God of, of persistent grace in our life. Lord, we've seen it. I've seen it in my own life. Lord, just you're so kind. And, and Lord, tonight, if anyone is asking the question, when have I seen your love for me? Lord, I pray that you remind them of the cross that you set your son to die on for them. Lord, not only the demonstration of, of God coming to us in, in, um, in, in the form of a child and in a baby, but Lord, coming in and living his life in order that he might die and sacrifice himself for us. Lord, there is no other God like this. There is no other God like this that loves us like this. So Lord, we pray um, as we move forward and as things change, as, as um, Lord, we go into a new season as a church, as a, as a body of Christ. Lord, we pray the gospel would go forth in a greater measure. That in Lord, that you would use us in that work. We pray, Lord, as we eat together, as we fellowship with one another, Lord, I pray that you would um, unite us together, draw us close, not only to one another, but to you through the conversations that we have. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, so, yeah, minor prophets. Thank you.